Welcome to Startup Health Now. This is the podcast where we celebrate the most innovative health entrepreneurs and the moonshots they're working to achieve. I'm Nicole Clark, Startup Health Senior Writer. Today, I'm pleased to be talking with Erica Plybier, CEO and founder of MedHall, and Nathalie Ocean, Director of Quality and Community Engagement at MedHall. In 2017, Erica developed a solution to one of the oldest challenges in healthcare, transportation. She took her solution and applied to a Memphis Medical District pitch competition. The competition was designed to help solve operational problems within the city's medical district. Erica's idea was one of two to win the challenge. And with that, her company MedHall was born. At MedHall, Erica and Natalie team and their team have built a digital platform that matches patients with the correct type of ride service for their needs. It allows hospitals and providers to book and pay for the rides directly. Erica, Natalie, it's great to have you guys on the show. So I, I like to start these conversations with a question that is simple in nature, but a little bit weighted these days. Um, that question being, how are you guys doing? There's so many metaphors, similes, memes that have been created to describe 2020. It, it went from kind of a trite play on words around 2020 vision for this year to a start of a new decade feeling like a page out of any number of apocalypse movies. Um, what, what has 2020 felt like for you? And coming back to that perhaps weighted question of how are you doing? Yeah, well, um, I'll go ahead and share. Actually, 2020 has been a, this is a very interesting year altogether. Um, I was sort of at the peak of my fundraising this year. So um, just the, <laughs> the overwhelming journey of fundraising, but then, then the pandemic came um, and then everything else behind that. So, but honestly, as far as, you know, the company is concerned, really the pandemic uh, kind of reassured for us that what we're doing is necessary. So honestly, our moonshot still hasn't changed. We're still focused on becoming the market leading solution for patients with special needs. Um, so, you know, we're serving populations whose health visits can't wait, you know, in the way that a dentist cleaning, you know, could be canceled or rescheduled, you know, and as far as the racial impact of being a black woman in America, especially a black founder, um, means having lived through racial injustices and being exposed, you know, our whole lives, whether directly or indirectly through our communities. So everything we do, including building Med Hall, or whether it's just walking down the street or whatever it is, is a call for social justice. Um, and, and specifically for Med Hall, we're doing that from a healthcare lens. Um, so, so yeah, it's 2020 has, has been an interesting year uh, for a couple different reasons. Um, but for me, I, I, I would say I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I've, I've learned um, through the quarantine and through the exhaustive process of fundraising to get more sleep. So, so that has been um, sort of one of the silver linings in all of this. I've learned to like take better care of myself as a founder because I know that when I do that, I'm better able to, to lead MedHall. So. Now, MedHall's primary goal is to make it easier to connect healthcare and transit. Why, why is transportation one of the primary social determinants of health and can you talk about how you're addressing this social health issue at MedHall? So transportation is a multifaceted social determinant of health in and of itself that impacts from all different angles. So it can include a lack of personal transportation, 
um, scarcity of public transportation with reasonable walking distance, having walkable streets that have sidewalks or um, crosswalks for pedestrians and signage, et cetera. And so not having a reliable way to get from point A to point B to be able to tend to those um, basic life needs is really, really crucial, especially in the including the health. So when you're missing, missing crucial preventive appointments, not getting the follow-up appointments or falling ill and having to, or deciding to stay home and take care of yourself, the list can go on and on of the different circumstances, but they all take a toll on its overall health. So MedHall works with facilities as patients that unknowingly misuse emergency services, and they turn to our solution for those non-emergencies, as well as simply providing the specialized transportation options that a patient would typically in order to get from and to or in order to get to and return from um, those medical related needs. Our platform removes the burden of that transportation management piece from the systems or facilities that we work with. And we our platform is in an easy-to-use cloud-based system. And we provide insights from the ride request all the way through to the ride's completion or when the patient is dropped off. Um, so because we're B2B, we work specifically with the facilities and not with the individual patients. So the facilities are the ones um, booking those rides for the patients on their behalf. That's great. And um, as far as where you guys are deployed right now, I, I know you're Memphis-based. Is uh, Are you pre predominantly in Memphis right now? So we're in the uh, we're deployed here in the Mid-South, and we have plans to expand by the end of the year. So yeah, Memphis and the surrounding areas are our primary focus currently. Okay, got it. So backing up a little bit, uh, you know, I, I learned about the initial competition for the Memphis Medical District that was a little bit of the catalyst for launching Med Hall. But I'm curious, you know, what, uh, Erica, what, what inspired you to, to launch Med Hall? Well, for me personally, um, I was driven to launch MedHall after seeing how difficult how difficult it was to facilitate facilitate transportation um, for my grandmother who was a type two diabetic double leg amputee, um, and this was actually just really in our small hometown, which is in Greenwood, Mississippi. So initially, I thought, hey, this is just a problem, you know, in our hometown. This is just a problem that our family's facing because of the lack of resources here. Um, or there. I wasn't actually living there, but I was trying to help my mother find resources for my grandmother. So um, the frustration from that um, felt, it was, it was just un, uh, completely unnerving, and it just made no sense why this barrier existed. It, it was just kind of like, you know, it was 2013, 2014, around the time where on-demand had become like a thing, and you could pretty much get anything on-demand, but um, accessing transportation for people with special needs was just such a huge barrier. Um, unfortunately, this is the case for, honestly, millions of families across our country. Um, some people can call on family members, neighbors, or have reliable public transportation options, but um, those who tend to get left behind and end up being, um, it ends up being those same individuals who end up seeking care only after the complications increase. So those patients that typically end up using emergency services um, as their primary care um, because they haven't had those opportunities to get access to those sort of basic resources that we that we all generally have access to, like transportation. So that was sort of like the yeah that was sort of like the origin um, along with my background, which is in clinical informatics. So. So how has COVID-19 impacted your work at Med Hall. You, 
I, I'm guessing that there have been adjustments perhaps that you've had to make. How are you working to account for some of the new safety guidelines in your transportation services? Yeah, so for us, the pandemic has pretty much reemphasized how important and necessary our services are. Um, we serve some of the most vulnerable populations and who are managing their diabetes or undergoing chemo uh, chemotherapy as their cancer treatments or that may have other specialized needs that general transportation typically wouldn't satisfy. So to Erica's point earlier, um, you know, these appointments can't just be canceled or rescheduled as other appointments could be um, because of the pandemic and other necessary restrictions that have been placed on public transportation and also for ride sharing, some of those populations that otherwise would have been left behind or not thought about, uh, MedHall is able to appropriately service them. So like we mentioned, chemotherapy or dialysis or other um, treatments, they don't cease because they're detrimental to the lives and livelihoods of these individuals. Um, a lot of people tend to um, think or lean on the fact that telehealth is widely available, and we've seen a surge in that use because of the um, pandemic, but there's also a clear line as to what can and can't be done virtually. So a lot of people that may have had um, their primary care visits that they can also see virtually um, are able to keep those, but things such as chemo or dialysis need to be done in person. And so the, with the guidelines that we've been following as far as those seen from the World Health Organization, the CDC and our state and local um, health department offices, we've been keeping a close eye and a close watch on as far as any updates that they provide and keeping in communication with our clients and our transportation providers as well as our general team. So that way everyone is up to date and stays abreast on the information that's being released. Thankfully for us, our transportation providers has always, have always been held to a high standard of quality as far as guidelines to make sure and ensure that our patients um, are in a safe vehicle and the ride is being conducted in a safely manner. So we didn't have to think about that. How do we create a safe ride or how do we create a safe experience in this situation for these, um, for these patients, which has been a definitely a great burden lift off of us because we've been, that's part of our day-to-day -day business. Yeah, it really feels like startups like like MedHall, uh, especially in the healthcare space right now, that the agility that startups like yours, companies like yours are able to offer to quickly pivot, um, to add additional layers to your process, that that is becoming kind of a hallmark of startups' ability to really answer the call to answer the need right now for what's needed uh, during the pandemic. So I commend both of you guys for, I'm sure, the late nights and midnight oil that you've been burning <laughs> to be able to make those adjustments. So to, to shift the conversation a little bit, um, over the past few weeks, there is a new hashtag, uh, one of many, I guess you could say, but uh, one that stuck out to me that has emerged on Twitter it's hashtag black in the ivory. It's a reference to being black in the ivory tower of industries like tech and media and health uh, and academia. The hashtag was first shared by two black women in communications research. And since then it's been posted thousands of times capturing experiences of anti-black racism in white dominated industries. And, you know, in the startup world, especially there's data that affirms this obvious racial discrimination and disparity. And I wanted to just share a few stats from the Project Diane 2018 report by Digital Undivided. Um, black women represented 
0.0006% of the $424 billion in total tech venture funding raised in 2009, since 2009. And only 1% of VC-backed founders between 2013 and 2018 were black. In the healthcare, indus uh, the healthcare industry specifically, you know, racism continues to be an issue, especially at the C-suite level, where oftentimes black professionals and those of other minority backgrounds have to go above and beyond in education and professional achievements to prove that they can do the job, even if the same isn't expected of their white colleagues. As black female entrepreneurs, what has your experience been like in the health startup space? And can you, can you offer advice for other black women on an entrepreneurial path? So yeah, this is a this, this is a pretty huge question, Nicole. Thank you for asking this, um, and thank you for addressing the the stark statistics of um, raising venture capital as a Black female founder. Um, I guess I can start off um, with healthcare specifically. Um, is that something that me and Natalie kind of seen over the past couple of years, even before starting MedHall? But um, as you kind of mentioned, uh, just within healthcare specifically even though women are 65% of healthcare's workforce, only 13% of those um, are, are women. 13% of those um, women are actually CEOs and just a very small handful of those are actually black women. Um, so that is just looking at healthcare administration across the board, um, a huge lack of diversity. Um, but as we start to look in um, the tech ecosystem, especially as far as fundraising, if I can just take a step back and look at my own story specifically, um, in short, even with having two co-lead investors, one of which is Morgan Stanley, um, and half of my round raise, ton of traction and revenue, um, raising funding has been very extensive and a very brutal journey. Um, so like many Black founders, I was operating my company and fundraising at the same time, um, which seems virtually impossible because honestly it really is but there's no such thing as raising a seed or even pre-seed fund round for black founders with no traction um <clears throat> so this balancing act is very difficult and very exhaustive because both are full-time jobs so running a company obviously and fundraising are both full-time jobs and they but unfortunately they were both necessary but you can't get major traction if you don't have funding but you can't get funding if you don't have traction so um, there were many times where I almost completely burned out and honestly almost got very close to just giving up. So um, with my overall journey, um, the primary themes of my obstacles have been, which I regularly share with other Black founders um, and try to help them so that they don't make either the same mistakes I made or if there are some things that they can do um, just so that they can be better prepared. Um, my company's metrics were usually criticized uh, much more heavily than those of my competitors. Um, even those who were at much later stages and had raised five times plus the amount of money that I've raised. When we first started the company, when we got the, really the extensive traction that we had gotten, we got all of that with only $70,000 in comparison to our competitors who raised anywhere between 500 and $2 million prior to getting their first customer. Um, additionally, Black founders typically have to undergo what we call the quadruple due diligence, which is typically bestowed upon us 
um, for often much times, uh, much smaller checks. Um, it's usually extensive, more extensive paperwork or more extensive work before getting um, a check than typical founders would, would have to go through. And we usually find this out because founders always talk to portfolio companies. I don't think investors realize that, that founders talk to each other. So we understand that there are other founders that do not go through the same processes that we have to go through. Um, additionally, there are tons of exploitative and predatory programs, showcases, demo days that are created for black and brown founders. But what they actually do is waste the time of thousands of founders who give their blood, sweat, and tears to ch for a chance to compete for one $10,000 check, or even worse, no money at all. Um, we see these across the board um, at much more higher rates. These, are, these types of programs or initiatives are created for black and brown founders and target black and brown founders. And then um, additionally, kind of what we're seeing right now is the dreaded offer of mentorship. Black founders are ridiculously over-mentored and under-sponsored. And what that means for us is that we regularly get um, offers of mentorships or offers of a 15 or 20 minute phone call, but we rarely have that person that will walk us into that room that we need to be in or that will write that check or introduce us to, to that customer. And that's really what we need. Um, you know, I am a part of several communities with very high potential uh, black founders, and we all see the same things across the board. So I really appreciate all the obstacles that I faced during my journey, because now um, with much trial and error, the hardships, has the hardships have taught me um, how to run a more efficient fundraise, um, or at least a little bit more efficient fundraise. It's always a learning process, but then also know which investment opportunities to give my time to. And most importantly, I'm thankful because I can reach back and share these lessons with other Black founders um, that are right behind me. So I, um, I usually share these with other, these lessons with other Black founders. And, you know, the most important thing that I can tell them to do is first and foremost to slow down and take care of yourselves because, you know, in this space, and this is really honestly for all founders, but in this space, it's very easy to burn out and it's very easy to read TechCrunch and all these other articles that, you know, say that founders are doing all of these things when they may actually not be doing those things, or it may be something that's not very fitting for you and your company, and you um, may be burning yourself out or um, doing something that's extremely inefficient and it's not really going to benefit your company. So all I can say is slow down, take care of yourself, and also build community. Um, if you don't have at least two to three founders that you can call on and, you know, talk about anything with, that is that should be sort of like your first goal. Because there's no way I would have gotten through um, a lot of what I've gotten through. There's no way I would have made it as far as I have made it um, without the the community of a lot of my um, other Black founders. So... Well, I, I really appreciate your openness and sharing those lessons learned. I, you know, in, in addition to being valuable for other black women who are entrepreneurs, I think it's incredibly important for the white community, for others to also understand, you know, by listening to those lessons that you've learned to be able to understand the obstacles that you have had to face and think about, you know, I've, I've uh, 
picked up this phrase and I really like it, but think about what non-optical allyship looks like to your point of not just offering to mentor or offering something, a uh, form of visual support, but to think about what that non-optical support looks like that is oftentimes the most valuable. Um, uh, Natalie, did you, did you want to offer any insights from, from your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for me, since Erica um, eloquently elaborated her experience in the entrepreneurial space and in the startup space, I'm going to go and backtrack to just the healthcare space in general from a corporate perspective, um, which is where my background comes from. And so one of the things that really catapulted me into my career and understanding the possibilities of where my career could go have been through some of the professional associations that I've been a part of. So the main one is the, the acronym is N-A-H-S-E, NASI, and it stands for the National Association of Health Services Executives. And this organization has only been around about 52 years, but it's an organization that promotes and uplifts Black executives within the healthcare industry specifically um, for those that are, that are minorities or in other underserved communities. And through this network of Black executives and Black leaders, my first time at the conference was really an eye-opener for me because I've never seen a room full of Black executives in healthcare or in C-suite positions in the way that I saw it at this conference or in their networking sessions. And it really opened my eyes to real realizing that I don't have to pigeonhole myself or I don't have to limit myself as far as where my career could go. Um, I always encourage anybody that I meet that's minority or that's a Black woman or that's a Black male to really take advantage of those opportunities within that organization specifically because it's rare that you find someone that's willing to, like Erica mentioned, not just mentor you but sponsor you to get you into those doors, get you into those rooms, provide you with those um, those hard and tangible concrete um, recommendations or introductions that will really take you somewhere. I know sometimes I get discouraged when I meet someone and it's a great conversation and it just turns into, yeah, I can help you just send me your email or send me your resume or I can, you know, introduce you to so-and-so. And that really doesn't turn into much because there isn't any value placed behind it. But I think it's really important, like Erica mentioned, to really find someone that's not just gonna mentor you with their words or with, um, you know, praising you with accolades, but is really gonna give you the, the tools that you need to advance and progress in your career and just in, in life generally. Well, I'm gonna ask for you guys' uh, openness and honest opinions on this next question as well. Um, you know, I think we are, we're in the midst of what many are calling a 21st century civil rights movement, a racial reckoning, American uprising. It's been given many names, um, but essentially the last few weeks that, um, of, of protests for racial justice that were sparked by the police killing of George Floyd on May 25th. When, when we reach these points of inflection, times when racial justice is finally on the radar of the many and not just the few. Um, it seems like there are often white people that come out of the woodworks to ask, what can we do to help? Mm -hmm. how, how does this question make you feel? And in your opinion, is this an appropriate ask? Um, I guess, especially when there has been so much literature and resources already that are spelling out some of the answers to that question. Um, do, you, do you think people are ready to not only hear the answers to that question of what can we do to help, but, but act on what's needed to close the racial equity gap? Um, yeah, so I'll start it off. Um, 
I think that there's a really fine line between genuinely wanting to know how to be useful in alignment, of course, with being proactive in your own research or in their own research, or just wanting to be like present in the moment or um, asking these questions in a performative nature. Um, I think it's safe to say that both Erica and I have kind of seen both um, ends of the spectrum in that regard. Um, where it gets tricky is a lot of people are viewing the George Floyd killing, for example, as an isolated incident. Um, and I, and I, it's definitely not just the one incident that should have um, sparked this uprising. But I think for um, Black people in the Black community, it's kind of the, cam the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, we've been dealing with this. This is, our this is what we deal with on a regular basis in our lives, um, in our day to day. Um, and a lot of people are just, they're recognizing it or they're being made aware of it, which is great. But for them, it's, for a lot of people, it tends to just be the moment or in the moment. Um, and that's not the case at all. I mean, I've seen a lot of posts or some posts from within my, um, whatever I can see on my timeline or on my feed on social media, where people are saying, oh, I can't wait for 2020 to be over this, you know, this has been a, a stressful year. And it's centered around the murders of Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. And again, the almost daily murders that have happened since then, even the ones that I've seen waking up this morning. Um, but it's, it's going to be a rude awakening because it's not like on midnight on January 1st, 2021, you know, racism isn't going to magically be abolished and we're all going to be good to go. Because this has been happening long before us and it's still happening to this very moment. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that this isn't just a one-time thing. And I know that for some people it's hard to see that or it's hard to understand that because they only know what they see, which is why I think it's important to be able to dissect what's being played or what's being um, provided as information from the media, you know, whether it's accurate or otherwise. Because um, a lot of people may have seen or may have heard of uh, or see the three names that I mentioned earlier, but only recognize one of them because that's the only name that they see being portrayed in the media on the specific channels that they may be on. But there's been so much that, have, that has happened just between February and May and even up until this day. Um, I'd also say that in all honesty for a lot of us, no matter how genuine the outreach may be as far as people coming to us and asking for um, guidance as far as where they can help, what they can start reading, what they can do to assist. It's just exhausting either way. Um, we've been asking, and I say we as in the Black community has been asking for these things that we're just now seeing slight headway for, for decades, for centuries, whether it's just the attention to the racial equity health data, inclusion in beauty products or, or brands, being valued in the workplace, equal pay, and etc. They're just being discussed in this moment because of the heightened awareness. And in some instances, it's definitely appreciated, but we also have to consider that is this, is this going to change? Is this just going to be a fad? Come July, is this all gonna, going to end? Are companies going to then take down their Black Lives Matter posts? Are the hiring, the, you know, the strategic diversity hiring processes going to be reshelved in some companies? So it's important for these organizations and these individuals that do have powerful voices in their organizations to be mindful of the way that they're coming up with these strategies to be helpful to the Black community. So are they doing things or coming up with solutions that are just to fix something in the moment or are they being strategic to think about how do we ingrain this belief that we do care about black lives into our day-to-day -day operations versus how do we do something today to show that we care and then just move on as we were before so i think it's it's a it's a loaded question uh, to be honest i don't even know if i really <laughs> answered the whole thing but i think it's it's really important for people to understand when they're 
what the lines are as far as being genuine. So coming, if you're going to approach someone with a question of how to be, of how to gain guidance on how to be helpful, at least come with some context. So say, you know, mm -hmm. let them know that you went onto this website and you donated here, or you signed this petition there, or you read up on this book and make it more of a dialogue versus a help me because I, I, I don't know what to do. And in that sense, when people are coming to us or coming to the Black community with kind of these um, vacant questions or these empty questions, it's, um, it just doesn't seem genuine sometimes. And it would be, it, and in some ways it tokenizes that individual. So it's like, I'm the only one who can answer the question because I'm black. And in some instances that is the case, but there's also, like you said, Nicole, there's plenty of resource, resources, there's plenty of research, there's plenty of information that people can at least start from before they start you know, putting a burden, so to speak, on some of their colleagues or some of their people in their networks for information on how to do better, so to speak. I, I think you did answer the question and it is intentionally loaded because I think these are the conversations that, that we need to be having. Um, and you, you know that better than I. Mm -hmm. um, Erica, did, did you wanna add to that, that question? No, I think Natalie answered it 1000% <laughs> perfectly. Um, I actually don't have anything to add. I'm, I'm looking forward to see where, where any of this goes. Um, obviously, uh, Black founders, um, you know, we've, we've seen an, an increase, um, a slight increase, you know, in reach outs from investors, not really sure if they're genuine or not. Um, and not haven't really seen, obviously it's, it hasn't been long enough to see any, any true impact yet. So interested to see, you know, where this goes and, um, and hopefully this does bring some sustainable change. Well, I think the, the idea of cautious optimism is something of an understatement right now mm -hmm. where it, it's, um, it, you know, to, to be optimistic, it feels vulnerable, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, when there is, you know, so much attention that's being brought to the issues of anti-Black violence and police brutality, you want to believe that this momentum will last. But I think you guys are right that we have to hold out for real action, for real policy changes, um, and, and time will really tell. I, the last question I have here is kind of around you know, maybe this idea of uh, changes that you've observed in 2020. And I will say I've, I've asked this question before and it's been predominantly around some of the pandemic induced changes, if you will, that we've, we've observed, whether that's, you know, a greater move to telework, education systems having to figure out what education looks like during times of isolation, I'll, I'll expand that question, you know, as far as both any uh, coronavirus pandemic induced changes or changes that have uh, come uh, as a result of some of the protests and visibility to the racial injustices in the last month. Are, are there any changes that you've observed that you hope stick? I'll start and I'll say from uh, from a professional lens. Um, so Medhall has always been a remote a wor remote work company. So um, it's been business as usual as far as telework is concerned. But what I am happy to see on that front is a lot of those companies that may have been hesitant or resistant to allowing employees to work from a home to work from a home 
are seeing it work favorably. So it actually can be done. Um, so I think it's great that they're um, kind of getting that experience to see like, oh, I didn't realize, because you know, a lot of the times it's, there's a resistance or there's a hesitancy because it's new and it's never been done before. But I think once you're thrown in it into a situation that the pandemic has kind of put a lot of businesses in, it's great to see that they're um, finding ways to kind of ingrain this into not just for the pandemic, but there are also ways we can adjust some of our, our policies or procedures so that way we can um, envelop some, maybe a percentage of work from home time for employees. It's, it's really hard to, to um, kind of comprehend having to miss a day of work or a full, day's, um, full day of work's pay because you just can't be in the office physically. You may be fully competent and uh, able to work, but because you, you can't be physically in the office, you have to take the day off. And unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of people really can't afford to miss those days. So it's really, I'm really hoping that, that um, op, those options for telework stick. Um, I'd also say on that front that I'd really, um, I really hope that those that are transitioning from working in the office to working from home during this time are being mindful and conscious of barriers where they need to be set so that way they're not working 24 seven. I know for me, sometimes it gets hard to identify when the end of the day is because you're working in the same place that you're sleeping and you're eating and you're relaxing and you're um, having fun. So it's hard to sometimes uh, create that line of, okay, this is the work day and it's gonna end right here. Even though you may not get everything done on your list for the day, it's okay to step back and just transition back into your home self. Um, I'd say personally, I've also enjoyed um, the creativity that people have put into connecting with loved ones virtually. So I'm originally from New Jersey. So a lot of my um, friends and close family are either in the Northeast or just along the East Coast. And we've always done like the group text chats or video chats or um, just talking on the phone um, all together. So I think for the pandemic, what we've uh, started to do or started to incorporate are virtual game nights, thank, you know, to those, thanks to those apps that have been created to help bring people together in that way. We've had Netflix movie watch sessions um, and we've had happy hours on Zoom. So it's been really cool to see how people are taking advantage of the op opportunity to be creative with how they connect to loved ones virtually. Even though everyone pr would prefer to, you know, jump on a plane and be able to see their loved ones face to face, but we're doing, we're doing, we're doing what, you know, we're doing what we can do with what we have. Um, and so I think it's going to be cool to see how people continue to incorporate these things for just distance relationships in the future. Yeah, I, I for one can say that I've definitely been more intentional about keeping in touch with my family. I think I've talked with my parents who are back home in uh, the Midwest more than I ever have this year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Erica, uh, what about you? Any changes that you've observed that, that you hope stick around? Yeah, same. Um, as Natalie mentioned, we're we're remote first company, um, and we always have been. It just always made sense for us being an early stage company. Um, so definitely hope those companies that you know were a little bit more reluctant to allow employees to work from home or allow employees to have reflexible uh, have flexible schedules um, will now sort of um, come over to the other side now that the pandemic has kind of forced us to be um, remote. So I've I've definitely um, enjoyed just seeing that outside of even in the startup and outside of the startup world. Um, but then also, um, I am, you know, very naturally introverted as well. Um, I actually enjoy working from home um, and have also enjoyed not traveling as much. And so I just kind of looked at my schedule 
and some other founder friends of mine were also saying this as well, we can be in two places at once. Like last week, I was at a conference in San Francisco and in Atlanta. So, um, you know, which was not possible before. Um, and, you know, just this month, I was, you know, supposed to be on a plane about 10 times this month. Um, you know, so I think um, this kind of gives us the opportunity to really look at um, our, our demand for, for traveling um, and does that really have like an impact, you know, on our productivity. Um, I do actually feel that I'm more productive now that I'm not on a plane or not going to the airport or leaving the airport or recovering from jet lag, you know, four or five times a month. So I'm actually really enjoying that as well. And, and the same has been for uh, some of my founder friends as well. Um, I've also been enjoying getting more sleep as I talked about earlier <laughs> on in the podcast. Um, I've actually spent the last two years um, sort of really studying sleep and the effect that it has on our body and our, our productivity. So um, I'm sort of, I'm a huge proponent of sleep and um, I've just been on this journey during the pandemic to get more sleep, and I hope that this will extend past um, <laughs> past sort of the quarantine phase. Well, I hope the same for you. I am also <laughs> a very big fan of promoting the importance of sleep, so I, I hear you on that. Um, Erica and Natalie, it's been a pleasure uh, getting to talk with you guys, and I appreciate your openness, your honesty, and the work that you're doing at MedHall to improve access to quality care for some of the most vulnerable communities. Um, for our listeners, you can learn more about the work that Erica and Natalie are doing at MedHall at gomedhall.com. You guys, thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nicole. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. And thank you, um, Startup Health, for even allowing us to share, you know, our opinions um, and our thoughts on this platform. And thank you so much for supporting us.